Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a performer, singing therapist and teacher. She was the first ever woman to stage a show at the English National Opera and has had a long career on and behind the stage, first based in the UK and then in India. She's the author of two memoirs, including the 2010 Chicken Coops for the Soul, as well as the non-fiction title Indian Folk Theatres. Her latest book is Why We Sing, an exploration of the importance of singing for our well-being. It combines stories from the author's life and others with the latest scientific research on the impact of song. Julia Hollander, welcome to Monica Reads. Hello. It's wonderful to have you here and to have somebody who embodies the joy of music, shall we put it that way. Yeah. And I'm really hoping we're going to get you to sing sometime during mm-hmm. the interview. <laughs> Why is music important? Oh, gosh. Isn't it important to everybody in some way or other? I think we all just know what joy it brings us and how it expresses things that we don't manage to express in any other way. You see everybody going around with their earphones in and they're in a different world, aren't they? They're transported by that music that they've chosen on their playlist and it kind of identifies them. It's a quite interesting time we're going through where life is so hectic now post-Covid and yet people find their own private space in their music. Mm. And as well as just listening, why does singing itself make us feel better? What happens to our body when we sing? Well, my book's about making music in this very particular way with our voices. So I've done that all my life and I've gained huge pleasure and sort of understanding of the world because, of course, music is a universal language, but instruments are rather sophisticated things you don't carry them on holiday with you but you're always taking your voice wherever you go and I travelled a lot in my 20s and I travelled a lot when I was an opera director as well and this was my universal language music and my voice was the instrument that I could carry it with so I found it the most accessible way of communicating with people with whom I couldn't otherwise communicate because I didn't have a common language so making music is what I was interested in I'd had these experiences particularly with people with dementia and we think of people with dementia, of course, as losing so many abilities and losing cognizance, losing understanding of rational things in the world. Well, in many cases, what I've discovered by singing with the Alzheimer's Society and then singing in care homes and running groups of my own for people with dementia is that they also gain things. They gain a sort of one shouldn't really generalise, but what I witnessed was that people had a sort of emotional clarity about them, an intuitive quality, a sort of childlike openness when they came to my singing groups, and they would join in with pretty much anything that I sang. But of course, they particularly joined in with things that somehow in the back of their mind, even if they didn't know it, they did remember. Mm -hmm. So there were musical songs, there were pop songs, there were childhood songs that just kind of clicked back in, even if they couldn't speak, there were songs there in their body, even more than in their mind, I would say. So we remember those. They're, they're yeah, it's a totally souls. visceral thing. Yeah, yeah, And that excited me very much. And I wanted to look into the science behind that. It's not hugely researched, but once you go back right to the kind of root of things, like who are we, we homo sapiens? Where did we come from? When did we develop language? Did we have song before language? A lot of archaeologists now think that we probably did, that the Neanderthals didn't have words, but they did have song. And they communicate 
emotions. They could communicate abstract ideas, high and low, rich and poor, heavy and light. They could communicate those things simply through the tonality of their voice. And they could point to stuff and they could tell one another what they felt about stuff. You know, So actually a non-word language, singing, is amazingly efficient at communicating between human beings as mm. well. And I mean, right at the beginning of the book, you talk about the science and you talk about it, how it develops from birth with our first gasp of oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the birth cry is a very special thing, isn't it? They say, people who've, acousticians who've gone in and listened to lots and lots of babies coming into the world, say that there is a kind of average tonality that babies create with that first sound. The first sound, which is basically... You take the gasp of air and then you emit it. And when it comes out, it hits your vocal folds in your closed throat and that creates a, a tone. And the tone, they reckon, is about 450 hertz, 450 cycles per second, which is just a little bit above a concert A, the A that an oboe plays when an orchestra tunes to it. So... Again, that really interests me, and there are sound healers who use tonality very particularly for touching different organs and touching different kind of psychological states. But we all are kind of familiar with that A, and we're familiar with it, if only we knew, from the day we're born. That's extraordinary. Mm. So then how does our relationship with singing change as we grow up? So you've got that very instinctive sound making at mm. the moment of birth, but then mm. you cycle through many, many different ways of relating to music. Yeah. So in the research I did, I, I looked quite broadly through anthropology, through behavioural science, through neurology. So, for example, anthropologists reckon that a lullaby is recognisable by any baby anywhere in the world and is sung by any parent anywhere in the world. We don't have inhibitions about singing lullabies. We, we know <laughs> we need to calm down our babies and we do it with our voices and we do it with a tuneful lilt. Even if it's not a song, though generally it is, it will be this thing that behavioural scientists called IDS, Infant Directed Speech, where we use that sing-song, hi, how are you doing, baby? Yes, that, that sort of mm. ridiculous voice that we use, especially for babies. We do it completely and intuitively. Dogs. <laughs> and dogs. Yeah, I do it very much for my dog. <laughs> I miss doing it for my babies. <laughs> so there's, there's the universal lullaby. There's the universal transcendent song. So in every culture, there's some sort of music for reaching for God, reaching for the unknowable, the cosmic force. Whatever the religion, there is going to be some sort of singing going on because, again, intuitively we have this sense that this heightened form of expression with notes, with heightened frequencies, is a way of kind of reaching out into some sort of heavenly realm. Mm. Mm. How interesting. The book is, is sort of shot through with personal memories and, and things that happened in, in your own life. Uh, and you also write about your own child, your daughter, who was diagnosed with acute cerebral palsy. And you talk about how she responded to song. Yes, that was really amazing. So poor Emmy had no cerebral cortex, which is basically the whole of the top of her brain had been destroyed by oxygen deprivation at her birth, uh, which was devastating for all of us in the family. But what happened when she was about one, once she'd settled down, because it was a huge trauma, you know, 
the suffering that was going on in her body as a result of this this uh, cerebral palsy. Once she'd been put on really effective medication and she'd grown and she, they'd established a feeding routine for her, the amazing doctors, she could at least listen. She, you know, had very acute hearing. We knew that right from the start. And I started to sing to her. Now, that had taken me a whole year, actually, because the shock of having this diagnosis of her having no understanding of the world and no ability, so the doctor said, to have a relationship with me, had given me this thing that, you know, is technically called dysphonia. In other words, I couldn't sing. I just lost my ability to sing, which for me, at the age of heading towards 40, I'd sung my whole life. I'd sung to my babies. I had another child, Ellie, who was two and a half years older. I found I couldn't sing. I just, my throat would just seize up every time I tried to create a tune. And it was a, it was an emotional response to this terrible thing that had happened to us. But when she was a year old, I found that I could start humming to her. And I found gradually I could start creating tunes. And gradually I started singing lullabies to her. Then her sister, who was two and a half years older, so she was three and a half by now, decided she wanted to sing to her. And so we had this little project. You can imagine it was, it was a huge experiment in whether we were going to have a relationship with Amy because the doctors had said we wouldn't because she wouldn't be able to connect with us in any way because of this brain, brain damage she had. So the big day was a day when we decided we were going to sing one of Ellie's favourite songs, which is Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. I'm going to sing it now, Please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sing it because this is the song that Emmy joined in on. Okay, this is a one-year-old who has no functioning cerebral cortex, okay? Her, she doesn't understand anything in the world, but she can hear. Everybody wants to be a cat Because the cat's the only cat Who knows where it's at Everybody's picking up on the feline beat Because everything else is obsolete Okay, so I'm singing along like this And then I hear Immy going Huh? 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 Okay, so what that is, is the keynote on the first beat of the bar. So she's basically singing along with our language. And that was the beginning of us having a relationship. So from then on, I sang a lot, and she responded quite a bit. Even if she just responded by being still and listening, because often her she had really severe epilepsy and a lot of pain going on. Just the fact that my voice could calm her was a really beautiful connection. By the time children become teenagers, it's again different. Does music kind of represent some sort of safe space for them? I think it does for all of us. For children and for people who suffer depression, people who are stressed. They've done a lot of tests on... For example, groups of people with cancer, what a singing group does, it lowers cortisol. You know, it goes right down. So you test salivary cortisol before and after, and it's just gone right down at the end of the session. With children, there's this big thing which is bonding. So the lullaby allows them to bond. 
You know, they feel that the oxytocin rises in their bodies and we singing the lullaby to them feel oxytocin. So for children, there's that going on. They've done these tests, trying to think where these ones come from. I think it's Canada. With mothers on the phone. I like this one because a lot of mothers have to do their mothering on the phone, right? So the mothers are, one group of mothers is remote and one group of mothers is in the room. And these children, I think they were 11 or so, were given a really nasty test. (laughs) I don't know, imagine it's your worst kind of math test. It's really stressful. So at the end of that session, the assumption is that their cortisol levels have risen. And then one group is allowed to come into the, the room with their own mother and get a cuddle to calm them down and make them feel better. The other group has to do it remotely on the phone with the mother singing to them. Well, what's interesting is that the oxytocin levels rise equally in both those groups and the cortisol levels go down equally in both those groups. In other words, singing to your child down the phone is just as good in terms of calming them and making them feel safe as giving them a hug. And yet, quite often we feel we can't sing and we don't want to sing and we're embarrassed about singing. And How does one conquer that? Well, these days, I think just by doing it. I say that because Amy could do it and because people with dementia can do it. The rest of us get a lot of cultural stuff that tells us we should shut up. We get nasty people at school telling us we haven't got a good voice, whether it's a teacher or a peer. I get mums coming to have lessons with me and they tell me that their teenagers tell them to shut up. (laughs) That's quite painful. That's quite inhibiting. But generally as a culture, we have this consumer product, which is called the singer. You know, there's Beyoncé. I couldn't possibly ever be like her. I better shut up. Mm. So my book is very much trying to encourage people that it's such a resource you know it's a gift for all of us we've had it all our lives we don't practice it we don't use it enough you know if we don't use our legs they do get all floppy but if we just gently engage with our voice in the shower for example where the acoustic is so great we um, have this facility that induces oxytocin reduces cortisol increases serotonin, increases endorphins, increases endocannabinoids, as they're called. It just, it's a feel-good factor that's mm. just there for us whenever we want it. You've got a fascinating chapter about singing and work, um, mm. about workers singing to get through their work and so on. Yeah. Tell us more. Well, that's an interesting thing. I remember a friend of mine going to work for Honda and saying they did these warm-up songs every morning, and I was really fascinated by that. I think it doesn't go on so much in Japan any longer. But there is this corporation idea, there was in the days when corporations were big on bonding. (laughs) The corporation song or the anthem was a really positive way of getting people on side, basically, you know, and getting the workforce bonded and efficient. So that's one idea that's been around for a long time. I like the language, actually, that's used these days, particularly in the psychology of the workplace. Ideas like attunement, this idea that psychologically, if we listen to one another and we engage with one another in a very attuned way, we're going to become happier and more efficient workers in the workplace. So just the language of song that has kind of inveigled its way into the psychology of the workplace really interests me. And I talked about 
random work things, particularly, for example, sea shanties, which were such a big thing in COVID. A sea shanty is the, a way... The Weller Man, wasn't it? That was a Weller huge man. man. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> What's uh, a bit frustrating about Weller Man is, is about waiting, which was perfect for COVID, but yeah. it isn't what sea shanties are generally for. Sea shanties generally are not about waiting around. They're about working, like hauling up the anchor. And what you need for that is really good teamwork and to kind of forget about how much your arms are aching. So it's a good distraction and it's a great way to entrain people's bodies. So the idea of entrainment and the example I give is Snowball the Cockatoo, who's readily available on YouTube doing his dance routines, booging on down to Michael Jackson often. He's the example in the animal world of a singer, he's a songbird, who entrains to a beat. In other words, he cannot help but move to a beat. And we humans are the same. And biologists think it's because we're singers that we have this kind of just instinctive need to move to a beat. And if we make our own beat, which is when we sing, then all the better. So that's what you're doing. When you're singing a sea shanty, even probably got in the 19th century when particularly when ships were crossing across the Atlantic between the west coast of Ireland and America. They had these private shipping firms who wanted, who were competing with one another. So the faster they went, the better. So they had these men called shanty men who would lead the singing and they would often have a call and response way of singing the shanty. A bit like Wellerman, actually, where there's one core singer and everybody else comes and joins in. So he can speed up the song if he wants to, to get us to pull, you know, the sails around faster, for example. Or he can slow it down to carb us down. But most importantly, he just keeps the singing going. And the, once we're singing together, hooray and up she rises, hooray and up she rises. With any luck, we're joyful from that. The endorphins are flowing. And we've got a solid beat and we're doing whatever the activity is, totally together with that beat. Mm, mm. You mentioned COVID there, and of course there was one song we were all encouraged to sing during COVID whilst we washed our hands. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Why was Happy Birthday not a great choice? (laughs) In my opinion, (laughs) Happy Birthday is the most popular song in the world, the most well-known, translated into more than 20 languages, they say. I think probably a lot more than 20 languages, actually. Isn't it weird how Happy Birthday, it was an American song in the 19th century, and now it's across the world, it's the song we all sing at birthdays. So I think it was chosen, I don't actually know, I didn't find the person who chose this song for us Brits to to sing as we washed our hands, but I know that we had to sing something that lasted 20 seconds. So someone randomly decided that Happy Birthday twice was going to be that. The trouble with it, is that there's an octave leap in the middle. It's a trouble for anyone who's at at any birthday party. Suddenly you're going, happy birthday, right in the middle of the song, just when actually you probably want to have another drink and settle down, you know. (laughs) So it's an odd one, Matt. I'm not terribly keen on it, but of course we associate it with happy occasions, so that's probably more important. I also really love the the chapter about protest and music Ah. uh, and the way that we we use music to express discontent. Yeah, more than that. I mean, I think it's really important, protest singing. You think about it, the activist is a disempowered person. You know, they're not the army, they're not the police, they're not politicians. The whole point about being on a protest is that you 
may not even have a vote, actually. You know, you're someone whose voice isn't being heard. So the first thing a protest song does is it gets your voice heard because when we sing, our voices are louder than when we speak. That's to do with just this pitching of the of the voice. So it's a powerful thing for the disempowered. That's how I look at it. There are other things too, kind of the opposite, which is this idea of non-violent direct action, which is has been very much considered, especially in this country, since the Greenham protests. So those were long-term protests. And my friend Peggy Seeger, who lives nearby, I live in Oxford and she lives up the road, she and I have talked about this a lot because she did a lot of protesting at Greenham and she wrote songs for the Greenham protesters, which are rather wonderful songs. She's the sister of Pete Seeger, who wrote We Shall Overcome and Where Have All the Flowers Gone and amazing civil rights mm. protest songs. So the Seegers know a lot about protest. The Greenham thing was basically sitting along a fence and waiting, waiting until they got rid of the missiles. And it worked. So song for them filled in time as much as anything. It just gave them something to do together in a joyful way. And the kind of third thing but there are lots of things about protest songs but the third thing that comes under so if we've said that it it gives a voice to the voiceless it keeps you occupied when you're sitting there waiting the third thing it does is it calms you down so this lowering of cortisol levels is really important when you're trying to do something like non-violent direct action because there are going to be people there who want it to become violent Mm. whether it's the protesters or the police or the army, you know, there's potential for violent conflict. We all know that about protests. It's something that activists take on board. But there are ways to stay calm. So, for example, when the police are coming to, as they did with the XR protest that I took part in in 2019, they came kind of out of the blue all of a sudden to remove the tents that had been set up in this camp on, on Whitehall where my group were. And when they arrive, it's really frightening. They come with... They come with weapons and they come with horses. Okay, so what do you do? You sit down and you sing. And by singing, you stay calm yourself and you, with any luck, calm them. But you also show your stubbornness in the fact that you're not going to move because this song is just going round and round and round. So it's an amazing force for calm and for determination, I think. It's an absolutely fascinating book. I mean, it really is. And as you say, music is so much a part of every single one of us, even those of us who think that we can't sing, even those of us who are tone deaf, I think. And as I say, it's also shot through with your with your wonderful life story. And so I wonder what's next for you. Well, I did a degree in humanities in philosophy and English literature. I sang, sang, sang. But I'm finding myself more and more drawn to to science and the kind of intersection of lived experience and scientific research and this ability I have from my singing and my humanities background to communicate, to tell stories. So I'm looking at other art forms and other therapies that feed into particularly the the starting point for this book, which was the dementia world. Because in medicine these days, there are amazing treatments going on. For example, cancer treatments are phenomenal. So we can see ourselves living into old age, healthy old age, with phenomenal medical help, except in certain areas. And those areas, dementia and particularly depression, actually, don't have cures by any means. 
But singing, and it's there in the book, and it was this beginning of my inspiration for the book, singing has a huge part to play in making us feel better. If we lose brain capacity, as you do with dementia, or if we have these hormonal and cultural depressions that take us into places where life feels like it's not worth living any longer. So those conditions, those conditions that we live long lives with but can't be cured by medicine are where I'm at. And that's where I'm researching at the moment. I'm so pleased that you chose to share this with us. Julia, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. That's Julia Hollander and her book Why We Sing from Atlantic Books is out now. You've been listening to Monica Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.